0: book of John. It's a very great privilege to be here in the Louisiana district, and I realize what an honor it is to speak at the district conference. I want to thank Brother Tenney and the district board for giving me this invitation, and I feel the spirit of the Lord here tonight. I believe that he is going to confirm his word. They gave me a big task tonight, and that is to preach on something that we all should be experts on, and yet somehow bring it in a fresh way. And to teach or to present a lot of information where it would be so desirable just to scream to the top of my lungs and preach an inspirational message and see a shouting in the aisles, but who knows? The Lord has a way of confirming His Word. There is a power that comes with the Word of God. Brother Barnes said it right. Doctrine is not something in itself. But Jesus said, My words are spirit and they are life. And if we have our mind set on the Word of God and have faith in His words, then things happen. Praise God. But I have a big job tonight, and by the help of the Lord, I'm going to try to to accomplish that. I'm not going to bring something that you don't know, but I'm going to bring something that we must remind ourselves of and keep before us at all times. John chapter 3, verse 5. Amen. I'm going to preach on our and teach on our Pentecostal apostolic identity. You know, I believe that this is the time for this message as never before. This is not time for us to apologize or back down on our message. But on the contrary, God is now anointing his message to spread it in a greater measure than ever before. Praise the Lord. John chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit." he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now I want to read another verse that I think describes the same experience. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. I think the message of Jesus Christ and the message of his apostles are the same. Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. One more time, let's ask God to bless his word tonight. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the reading of your word. And once again, thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. Now, Lord, have your way tonight. Let your will be done. Stir our hearts. Teach us of you. Help us to understand you better. And we thank you for it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. 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 Amen. You may be seated. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Again, let me say it's a privilege to be here. I only regret that I couldn't be here last night, but I just got into the country late Monday night, and I want to just insert this here at the beginning because I believe that it will help illustrate what we're trying to say tonight. But now is not the time to back down on our message. Now is the time to assert our identity as never before. If you were to talk to some of the religious philosophers or historians just before the turn of this century, and describe them the outpouring of the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues, and then tell them that it would sweep across the world, that it would touch every country, every denomination, that literally millions would claim this experience, to the point that Time Magazine would say the Pentecostals are the largest single group of Christianity, Protestant Christianity, they would say, no way, it's impossible. In a few short years, the impossible has happened. But I do not believe that God's work is through yet. If the Lord tarries, I believe there is a revival of the name of Jesus to accompany a revival of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we somehow think that it can happen. We sit on the sidelines and let all these other groups uh, claim or enjoy a measure of the Holy Ghost. But if we can see what God did with the message of the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues, why can't we have the same faith for the truth of the oneness of God? baptism in Jesus' name and holiness of life. And it's not just going to happen. I believe it is happening in our worlds. I just came back from the country of Hungary. In the last few years, a miracle has happened. A Trinitarian Pentecostal group, the leadership of that group have seen oneness and baptism in Jesus' name. They've come into this truth. They've baptized 40% of their believers to this point and are in the process of baptizing the rest. So I went over there with the first seminars on the oneness of the Godhead baptism in Jesus name and the people are hungry for truth they said nobody's ever taught this before but it's so easy to understand it's the Bible and many of them said we want to be baptized in Jesus name hallelujah it's happening right now that little group is called the Assemblies of God by the way but it's now called the Assemblies of God United Pentecostal Church because they baptize in Jesus name hallelujah it can happen over there it can happen over here If we'll stand up for what we believe and proclaim the truth of God's words. And just at the last moment before I was coming back, I met a lady from Bulgaria and she said, We have translated the first four chapters of the oneness of God that you've written into the Bulgarian language. She said, I smuggled it in to a a group of 3,000 Trinitarian Pentecostal believers in the country of Bulgaria. I gave it to them. She said... We've never heard this before. All we've known is the Trinity, but this is Bible. We need this kind of literature. We want to hear from these kind of preachers. There's a revival on the making that we have not realized yet. But we must stand firm and stalwart on the truth of God's word if we expect to see it. I believe what the message of Esther, who knows what you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Could it be that God has nourished our movement for this time to claim our inheritance for the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! Praise God. Let me just make a few comments before we get directly into the Word of God on this subject. I've tried to look at this from every angle, tried to be as objective as I can, uh, objective knowing that I have received the Holy Ghost, that I have been baptized in His name, that I know firsthand the blessings and benefits of this experience. But I've tried to look at it is it really necessary? Is it really the Bible's message? Uh, Is it really important that we emphasize this even though it means that we cannot fellowship with these other groups that go under the banner of Christianity? How essential is this? And I've looked around. I've seen my parents as they pioneered a work in Korea how it would be so easy perhaps just to let down some areas of the message to gain acceptance in a new country. But yet I've, I've seen the persecution being called a cult and a heresy that comes with proclaiming this message. I've seen the revival that comes to those who persevere with this message. I've looked at various people that once preached the message and now no longer seem to do so. And I've come to a few preliminary conclusions, and that is, first of all, truth is a whole. You cannot really separate it. Now it's one thing when somebody is coming to truth, but it's another thing when somebody has the truth and starts saying, a couple of these things are no longer necessary. i found you cannot divide the truth up into little pies and say, I want this piece, but I don't want this piece. We must take it as it is. You start unraveling a little bit on holiness, and before you know it, you're questioning baptism in Jesus' name. Before you know it, you're questioning the necessity for the Holy Ghost. It all fits together. There is no way to separate that. And I've seen tragically someone that says, oh, well, let's don't quibble about the technicality of the baptismal formula. And then I've talked to them later, a few years later, and they say, yes, I am a Trinitarian no I do not believe that you should expect to receive the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues it may happen but it's not to be expected in our day and time somebody that once had the very same experience and it seems to me that once you play around with truth you have consequences that even you did not intend so important that we look at this together and then I've tried to examine the fruit as Jesus said to do of those that are departing or that have departed from this message and i found that the fruit betrays them. Instead of going on to greater truth and greater revelation as seemingly they profess, it seems they're preoccupied with attacking us, with dividing us, trying to tear down churches, trying to do this and do that. And instead of reaching out with an evangelistic thrust, they turn in on themselves. And so that made me wonder, wait a minute, something's not adding up. If if they have a greater revelation, if they have a greater truth, why aren't they seeing more souls saved? Why aren't they seeing a greater measure of revival? Why aren't they praying for us that we might be built up instead of trying to tear us down to the lowest common denominator? And so I begin to look at this, and I have come to the conclusion that what we're talking about is not just some optional extra, but it is at the heart of our identity as an apostolic movement, as the United Pentecostal Church. And our articles of faith state, and although they're not Uh, to be replaced, uh, to replace scripture, yet they are the basis of our fellowship, what we understand the scripture to teach. And our articles of faith say that we believe the message, the Bible message of full salvation is repentance, baptism by immersion in the name of Jesus Christ, and receiving the Holy Ghost with the sign of speaking in tongues. And that is the basis, what we believe is the teaching of the scripture. And it seems that if we would depart from any of those essentials, we lose our reason for existence. There's no reason for us to exist as an organization. We should just join up with all the other organizations that are already existing, that have more money and influence and power in this world than we. And so what we're talking about is not a minor thing, but it's talking about our very identity as a people, as a group, as an organization, as a movement. Now, I chose these two scriptures as our foundation. Many people shy away from what they call exclusivism. That is by saying we've got the truth we have the message of salvation and other people who do not teach the message of salvation do not have salvation. And I'm not one to think that we should go around saying you're going to hell you're going to heaven to judge this person that person and condemn. That's not our task. But it is our task to preach the whole counsel of God. To preach the Bible message of salvation. And we cannot shy away from that. And those that shy away from the message of exclusivism, as they call it. Jesus Christ is the one who established exclusivism. He said, except you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He said here in John 3, 5, except you're born of the water and of the Spirit. And then I go to Acts two thirty eight. And it's popular for some people to say You Pentecostals overemphasize Acts you, All you've got is Acts 238 And I believe firmly that we need to integrate the whole of Scripture Romans is just as powerful as Acts The epistles and the Acts, the Gospels The witness of the Old Testament all work together And we need to be studious enough And careful enough and take the time enough To put them all together We have much more than Acts 238 We've got Scripture after Scripture That teach baptism in Jesus' name The Holy Ghost We're not limited to one verse. However, we should not let other people put us in a corner of intimidation and to devalue Acts 2.38. After all, it is a highly significant verse. It is the first sermon, the first altar call of the first sermon on the birthday of the church. It must carry a great significance. It was preached by the apostle Peter with the support of all the apostles of the Lord, standing there with him. If you search the New Testament church record from the time it began at Pentecost and you look at all the places where the question is asked of the church what must I do to be saved? What must I do? You will find two places and Acts is the first and most comprehensive. It was given to Jews Jews who knew the Old Testament well Jews who knew about repentance Jews who had seen John the Baptist baptized in water Jews who knew about the terminology of the Holy Spirit who had heard of the promise of the new covenant, who had heard the prophecy of Joel, they were in a position to understand what remission of sins was and their need for it. And so they could be given the complete comprehensive answer in a nutshell immediately, because they were at that level to receive. The only other time this question is asked, it's asked by the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 who knew nothing of God, was a pagan worshiping false gods on the verge of committing suicide in total shock at this miraculous earthquake and the escape of all his prisoners. He said, what shall I do to be saved? Paul and Silas could not give him the most comprehensive answer at that immediate moment because he had no background. So they said, look, salvation is in Jesus Christ, in him alone. Turn away from your false gods. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And when he heard that, he took him into this house. They preached the word of God to him, and I'm persuaded it was the same thing that Peter preached at Pentecost because at midnight he got baptized. It was so urgent and so pressing. He did not wait for the public to see him as if it were just a public declaration. He did not wait for Paul and Silas to recover from their wounds as if it were just an optional exercise of symbolic value, but he saw his need at midnight to be baptized. And then the Bible says he rejoiced with all his house. He received an experience that caused him to rejoice. And I know that righteousness and peace and joy come in the Holy Ghost. I'm persuaded the Holy Spirit fell on that man at that night. Hallelujah. So we see that Acts 2.38 is the most comprehensive, complete New Testament answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? And any minister who will not give that answer does not understand the fullness of salvation that God has provided His New Testament Church. So we must start by recognizing the importance of the Acts 2.38 message. Now I want to go to some of the elements of the new birth tonight. What does it take to be born again? What is all involved in the process of our salvation? The first thing that we must recognize, faith. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and verse 9 tell us that by grace are you saved through faith the gift of god it's not of yourselves it's not of works lest any man should boast we cannot earn pay by merit deserve our salvation it's received by faith the doctrine of grace says that salvation is a free gift from god that we don't deserve the doctrine of faith says that we receive salvation by putting our complete trust in jesus christ not relying on our works but relying on what he did for us at calvary relying on his death burial and resurrection to purchase our salvation. But the doctrine of grace and the doctrine of faith do not eliminate the new birth. They tell us how we receive the new birth. Faith, you see, is not just a mental attitude. It's not just mental assent or verbal profession. Biblical faith requires trust, reliance, commitment, appropriation, application, obedience. Faith includes obedience. You cannot separate the two. When Jesus called his disciples, he said, lay down your nets and come follow me. They did not become his disciples by saying, I confess you as my Savior. You are the Lord. You are the Messiah. I have faith in you. And then keeping on fishing. They only became his disciples when they laid down his net, their nets, got up, and walked after him. Only in the act of obedience did they truly become believers. Faith is only faith when you put it in action. Faith can only become real as you obey. As one theologian said, only he who believes is obedient. And only he who is obedient believes. You see, Romans 1.5 talks about the obedience of faith. Romans 16.26 talks about the obedience of faith. Or one translation says, the obedience that comes from faith. True faith includes obedience and cannot be separated from it. You see, there is no merit, saving merit in faith in and of itself. We don't save ourselves by faith in our minds. If so, the Buddhists would be saved. Many Buddhists have great faith in Buddha. Many Muslims have great faith in the teachings of Muhammad. But their faith does not save them. The only merit in faith is the object of faith, who you have your faith in. You're only saved as you have faith in the true God and in his word. So faith must be tied to the word of God. Faith is not just a moment in time. It's a continuous relationship. The just shall live by faith, Romans 1, 17. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Colossians 2.6 It's really a lifetime of faith. A continuous obedience to the word of God. You know, it is possible to have a degree of faith and not be saved. The devils believe and tremble, James 2.19 but we would not accuse them of being saved. There are some people in Matthew chapter 7 that said, Lord, Lord, they confess Jesus as their Lord. We've done miracles in your name. They have enough faith to do miracles. We've preached in your name. But he said, Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Why? Because you did not do the will of my Father. Saving faith is more than profession. Saving faith includes obedience. There were some people in John chapter 2, they believed on the Lord when they saw the miracles, but he did not commit himself to him, them because he knew their hearts. John 12, many Pharisees believed on Jesus, but they were afraid to confess him in public. They were not saved. There are many people that believe to a degree, and we can honor that and acknowledge that and encourage them and compliment them for that, but we must lead them on to full obedience to the Word of God. If you truly have faith, it will lead you to obey God's Word. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us the gospel in a nutshell. 1 Corinthians 15, 1, 2, 3, and 4 says that the gospel which Paul preached was the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the good news that Jesus came to purchase our salvation. But how do we receive that into our lives? Romans chapter 6 tells us we must die to sin. He says, how can we live in sin? Don't you know that you died to sin? Don't you know that you are crucified with Christ? And of course, that's the definition of repentance. That's what we do when we repent. We turn away from the old life. We kill the old lifestyle. We crucify the flesh and we make up our minds to live unto God. And then Romans 6 says we're buried with Christ in baptism. We bury those old sins never to be brought up again. And then we rise to walk in newness of life. And if you'll keep reading the book of Romans chapter 8 verse 2, it says that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, when we receive the spirit of the resurrected Christ, we share in his resurrection. Oh yes, our bodies will be resurrected one day, but we don't wait for them to have new life. You have new life now. If you have the Spirit of God living in you, the same Spirit that raised Him from the dead is living in you and will raise you from the dead. Hallelujah. So how do we believe and obey the gospel? The Bible talks about obeying the gospel. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 says that judgment will come on all those that know not God and that obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you obey the gospel? gospel it's obeying and applying that gospel to your life dying with christ in repentance being buried with him in baptism rising in resurrection life through the power of his holy spirit you see saving faith is this first of all you must accept the gospel of jesus christ as the only way of salvation but a lot of people stop there it's not enough to accept it mentally second thing you must apply the gospel or obey the gospel to your life that's how we're saved by faith. This is the teaching of Jesus. Jesus priest in Mark chapter 1, verse 5, Repent ye and believe the gospel. Is it possible to believe the gospel and not repent? Maybe intellectually, but not in the scriptural meaning of belief. If you repent and believe the gospel. And in Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Belief is uh, inextricably linked with water baptism. Somebody says, well, he didn't say, if, you, if you're baptized not, you'll be damned. But he said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Some people would like to add a word there. He that is, believeth and is not baptized shall be saved. But that's the opposite of what Jesus said. He went on to say, he that believeth not shall be damned. Knowing that if you didn't believe, you wouldn't go to the trouble to be baptized. Or if you did, by some chance, it would do no good. Because mere baptism without belief, without repentance, is getting wet. It's not really baptism at all. So he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. That covers all situations. But that shows us that saving faith includes not only repentance but water baptism. And then Jesus said in John seven thirty eight 38-39, He that believeth on me as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believed on him should receive. If you really believe on the Lord Jesus Christ like the scriptures say, what's going to happen to you? You're going to receive the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. You're going to repent. You're going to be baptized in his name. You're going to receive his spirit. That's how you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That very phrase, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a scriptural phrase. You know how it's used? Acts 11:17. Peter was called on the carpet for preaching to Cornelius. He said, Well, I couldn't help it, brothers, as I was preaching. The Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. It was the same thing we received, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. There was no doubt, for we heard them speak with tongues, and then I commanded them to be baptized. But this is what he said. He said, Who was I that could withstand God with these people that received the same Holy Ghost as we did, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? And he gave a biblical definition of those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody tells me, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I say, Praise God. I'm glad to hear that. But I have two questions for you. The same two questions that the Apostle Paul asked believers at Ephesus. How are you baptized? Let me show you Jesus' name, baptism. Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Or as one translation says, did you receive the Holy Ghost when you believed? If you haven't, I want to tell you there's more. For your faith to be complete, for your spiritual experience to be complete, you should be baptized in Jesus' name. You should receive the Holy Spirit. Praise God. So, Being saved by faith and obeying Acts 2.38 are not contradictory. They're really one and the same. Praise God. The description justification by faith is a very biblical and beautiful term. Justification means to be counted righteous in the sight of God. And it's essential that we understand it comes by faith and not by works. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot pay God enough to get the Holy Ghost. There's only one way you get the Holy Ghost. Faith. You cannot receive the Holy Ghost by begging, by stealing, by borrowing, by anything, but just coming to God saying, I'm a sinner, forgive me, I want to do your will, I want to obey your will, fill me. You receive the Holy Ghost by faith, you don't earn it. You receive remission of sins in Jesus' name by faith, by calling on the Lord. It's not the water that takes away your sins, it's not the preacher that takes away your sins, it's Jesus Christ that takes away your sins. Hallelujah. The theologians say that justification consists of two parts, taking away the removal of sin or the non-imputation of sin, that's the negative side, then the positive side is the imputation of righteousness, imparting righteousness to your account. Well that's very good and that's true, but when is our sin taken away? It seems to me, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. There's the first part of justification. And then, how do we receive the righteousness of Christ? Romans chapter 8 tells us the whole reason why God gives us the Holy Spirit, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You can only have the righteousness of God in you as you rely upon and are filled with His Holy Spirit. So it seems to me that the work of justification is completed in our lives as we obey the Acts 2.38 message by faith. Now, faith, as I said, is not separate from obedience. Romans chapter 4 tells us that Abraham was justified by faith. But if you go back and read the scripture in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, God said, I am fulfilling my promise to you, Abraham, because you obeyed my voice. Obedience is faith. and and God told Isaac when he confirmed the covenant to him in Genesis 26, 5 because your father Abraham obeyed my voice kept my statutes kept my commandments therefore I'm going to renew this covenant to you and fulfill it to you also justification by faith includes obedience it's not separate from it let me give you an example all throughout scripture people were saved by faith nobody ever earned their salvation it's not true that the people under the law of Moses were saved by their works oh no they were saved by faith Romans 4 makes that clear. Abraham was justified by faith before the law. David was justified by faith under the law. All throughout eternity, every, uh, all throughout human history, everybody that's been saved has been saved, first of all, by grace, a gift of God. Through faith, they had to receive it by believing in God, and their faith caused them to obey. It's a contradiction in terms to say, a, I'm a disobedient believer. There is no such thing. If you really believe God's word... You will obey God's word. If you really believe all liars have their part in the lake of fire, what are you going to do? You're not going to just go around saying how much you believe it. You're going to try to do something about it. You're going to repent of lying. You're going to ask God to help you not lie. See what I mean? You can't speak of a disobedient believer. All throughout the Bible, people were saved by grace through obedient faith based on the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The blood of bulls and goats never could take away sin. But those were only temporary sacrifices pointing to the true sacrifice of Calvary. They would take away the sin of the world. Now, having said that, what if an Old Testament saint at the time of the Passover would have said, I believe the Lord. I believe he's provided a way of salvation. I don't see why we have to put the blood on the doorpost. It's all a matter of faith in the heart anyway, isn't it? What would have happened when the death angel came to his house? Would the death angel have inquired into his state of mind, his sincere belief? No, the death angel would have looked at the blood on the doorpost. What happened if an Israelite would have sinned under the law of Moses and he would have said, I don't really see why I have to offer the blood sacrifice. The blood of animals can't really take away my sin. I'm just going to talk to God personally about this and just make it right with him. What would have happened? Would God have taken away his sin? The Old Testament says not. Now, if God could demand those Old Testament saints to apply the blood, if he could demand them to offer sacrifices, Or circumcision. What if the the Jew would have said, Well, I don't think I need to circumcise my son. Just let him grow up without it. That's just a symbol. That's just an outward sign of the flesh anyway. You know what happened to one man that apparently thought that way? God met Moses in the way and was going to kill him. And God said, Any child that's not circumcised is cut off from my people. Cannot participate in the Passover. is not part of the covenant people. Now, if God could demand the application of the blood, circumcision, blood sacrifice as part of obedience to his word, as a vital expression of faith in his word, then he can require us to repent. He can require us to be baptized in Jesus' name. Acts 2.38 is not salvation by works. Oh, no. We don't save ourselves. It's God who saves us. It's God who washes away our sins when we call on him in faith. It's God who fills us with his spirit. That's not salvation by works. That is obeying the word of God. And as a result of our obedient faith, he does the saving in us. We don't change ourselves. He does it for us. So we must see that justification by faith occurs at the new birth experience. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, And such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's the Bible, justification by faith. Now, Romans chapter 10 talks about confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart, and you shall be saved. A lot of people just like to take that right there and ignore everything else that we've been talking about. But let me show you how well this fits in with everything. First of all, we see that it was spoken to the church, explaining, not explaining how they could be converted from their sins. They had already received the Acts 2.38 experience. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, we find that Paul, from from Uh, Baptized in Jesus' name From Romans chapter 6 He baptized in Jesus' name They received the Holy Ghost We see from Romans chapter 8 He was talking to a people That knew all about this experience But he was explaining The basis of their salvation The basis of their continued salvation Comes only by confessing And believing in the Lord And he was explaining Israel's problem Their problem wasn't rejecting Baptism of the Holy Ghost their problem wasn't rejecting water baptism. Their problem was more basic than that. Their problem was rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. If they would only confess him, all else would follow. Now, he quoted from Deuteronomy 30. The word of God is not far away from you. It's not way up in heaven. It's not way down the deep. But it's not you, even in your mouth. He's saying it's available to everybody. But Deuteronomy, when you follow that passage, has one last line, which is very crucial, which I think the apostle Paul had in his mind, and you, his readers, would understand You know what that last phrase was? The word is you, even in your mouth that thou mayest do it. The whole reason for the preaching is not for you just to confess with your mouth and go on doing like you always did. It's confess and believe so that you may do it. And what was the message that Paul preached? That's what we're looking at tonight. He was preaching it so that we might do it. Now how do you confess the Lord with your mouth? It's not just a mere verbal confession. We've already said in Matthew 7, a lot of people will say Jesus is Lord and they're not going to be saved. For confession to be valid, it must be truthful. And to confess Jesus as Lord means he really is your Lord and you are his servant. In other words, you obey his words. To really believe in your heart means you're going to obey his words. How do we confess the Lord? I think initially... 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, No one can confess that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Ghost. You can't really understand who he is without the Spirit anointing your mind. You cannot really obey him in the holiness of life that he requires unless you are filled with his Holy Spirit. Acts two twenty one: Whosoever shall call the name of the Lord shall be saved. But that was quoted as a prophecy of Joel applied to the believers when they received the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2. That's how you confess the Lord. Acts twenty two sixteen arise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord that's where you confess the Lord we confess him when we are baptized in his name when we're filled with his spirit when we speak in tongues as he gives the utterance then we're really saying Jesus is Lord not in name only but he is Lord of my life praise God so believing in the Lord believing unto salvation is perfectly compatible with the Acts 238 experience now Let me just do a little uh, comparison here. Not everybody sees this way of salvation, of course. As I look in church history, it seems that there are three views of salvation. First, there is the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox, and this is how they say you're saved. You're saved through the sacraments. You just go through the ritual, baptize as a baby, and you automatically receive the Holy Spirit. You're confirmed. You go through penance and all this, and you're automatically saved. Salvation comes through the sacraments, whether or not you really believe, whether or not you live a holy life, the church and only the church, the priests and only the priests administer salvation to you. That's the first view. The second view is what I would call the Reformation view, Luther, Wesley, Calvin, all that. They say that salvation, not so much Wesley, but Luther and Calvin especially, they say that salvation comes outside of you. It's already happened and you just acknowledge it with your head and then you become saved. Your life doesn't change. They spoke of being a justified sinner. Luther said, sin boldly. What he was saying, he wasn't advocating unholy life, but what he was saying, look, you know, sin. If you're going to sin, just do it because Christ is going to cover you. You can't help it. You're just going to sin, so go ahead and do it and then believe that the Lord is going to forgive you anyway. Because they believed that it didn't, that salvation was not an inner transformation, but it was something that happened outside of you, a historic event at Calvary that just you accepted by mental faith. And this was linked with their view of predestination. You see, Luther and Zwingli and Calvin all taught very strongly the doctrine of predestination that God determined before you were born who was going to heaven, who was going to hell. There's nothing you could do about it. So you see, their view of salvation is a lot different from ours. Their view is just confessing something that God already decided and nothing you could do about it. And that's what a lot of people teach today. They may not realize the background of predestination, but what they're really saying is just accept something outside of you that doesn't change your life. And once... Once you accept it, you can't lose it, no matter how much you try. It's just something to happen outside of you. The hardest you might try to lose it, you can't lose it. It has nothing to do with you. But then the third view as more in line with what we would say, and that's John Wesley and the Methodist and so on, that salvation is something that must happen inside of you. It's a transformation of your life. And that's what I believe the Bible teaches It changes your life. It's not something outside. It's not something administered by a priesthood. But it's something that happens inside of you where you know. You can point to the time you're saved. You can say, my life was changed. I'm a new creature. Behold, all things are passed away. And behold, all things are become new. I'm saved and I know it. I can tell you the time. I can take you to the place. Because it happened to me. Praise God. Well, let's look at it for a few minutes. Repentance. Repentance is essential to salvation. Luke 13, Jesus said, Except you repent, you will all likewise perish. And I'm afraid that sometimes we and maybe other people that preach the Holy Ghost do not emphasize the need of repentance as much. A lot of people do not see the Holy Ghost as essential, and so they just say, Come and receive your prayer language, or come and get an extra blessing. But I do not believe you can genuinely receive the Holy Spirit without a genuine repentance. And that means you recognize your sin. You confess your sin to God. You feel a godly sorrow for sin. Not just sorry you got caught in your problems. But sorry that you were led a sinful lifestyle. And it must involve a decision to turn away from sin. And I know we can't do that completely without the power of God. But we must make that decision first. I will change my life. That's repentance. Now sometimes that may just take a few seconds in your mind. Sometimes that may take all night wrestling and agony and prayer. But the point is. We couldn't shouldn't expect people just to come just uh, raise your hands and receive the blessing unless they understand what repentance is all about because you can't receive the Holy Spirit without repentance from sin you don't receive remission of sins when you're baptized without repentance from sin repent and be baptized for the remission of sins now the apostles preach repentance strongly you can see it all throughout their message the early post-apostolic church studying in church history they emphasized very strongly so much so they demanded proof some proof of repentance before they were baptized you. They got so radical on this that they said after you were baptized if you went back into some major sins that they listed there is no hope for you. You were supposed to repent and that was it. And of course they went too far in that direction but that shows you how strongly they felt the need for a change of life. Now the Roman Catholic Church began a different view because they practiced infant baptism so infants very well couldn't very well repent. So they made repentance into penance. A lifelong uh, ritual of saying you're sorry and then keep doing the same thing and trying to pay your sins off and keep living in your sins, not true repentance at all. Then when the Reformation came along, they did not really come back to genuine repentance because they said salvation is by predestination. Salvation is outside of you. you, You're you're a sinner. They they said before you're a sinner, now you're a saved sinner. Before you were a lost sinner, now you're a justified sinner. And so they said repentance is just equivalent to the moment of faith. They said you're saved by your mental assent, so you must, repentance comes before you believe, some of them said, because it couldn't come after because you're already saved. The first moment you confess Jesus is Lord, you're already saved. So repentance must come before you believe, or maybe it comes at the same time you believe. And you find that is a common thinking in circles today, that you can just make a token, uh, raising your hand, signing your card, calling in the telephone, repeating a prayer that somebody else is giving to you, and that is salvation. But that's not even genuine repentance. Now, I believe that there are many people in various churches that do genuinely repent of their sins. But there are many that don't even know what repentance is all about. Because they have defined it away as just a momentary flicker of mental faith. And they do not have a real concept of genuine repentance. But we must emphasize that today. Then water baptism. Is water baptism merely a symbol or is it a part of our salvation? Let me give you some scripture Mark 16, 16, we've quoted, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. John 3, 5, born of the water. Acts 2.38, be baptized for the remission of sins. Acts 22, 16, be baptized and wash away your sins. Romans 6:3, you're baptized into Christ. 6.4, you're buried with him in baptism. Galatians 3:27, baptized into Christ. Colossians 2, 11, uh, your baptism is a circumcision. It's part of your spiritual circumcision. Again, it's a burial with him in baptism. Titus 3.5, the washing of regeneration. 1 Peter 3.21, a uh, baptism doth also now save us. It's the answer or the request of a good for a good conscience, a clean conscience before God. These and many other scriptures show us that water baptism plays a vital role as part of the salvation experience. Now, it's not in the water that saves, but God has chosen to honor our obedient faith at that moment and to remit our sins now we could speculate uh, god could forgive sins without baptism sure he did in the old testament we don't have to speculate what god might have done how he might have designed it we're faced with what god said he has done and there is a the promise if you will repent and if you will be baptized in jesus name i will wash away your sins that should be enough we know what happens when we are baptized we shouldn't speculate on what if. If there was some other planet or some other plan, but we know what God has said, let's just do it and we don't need to worry about it. We'll receive what God has given at that time. Now it is for the remission of sins. This more than a ceremony. The eunuch was baptized in the middle of the desert. It wasn't just a public ceremony. The the jailer was baptized at midnight. For the remission of sin. Some debate on that, but just to simply bring this in light, Matthew twenty six twenty eight tells us, Jesus said, my blood is shed for the remission of sins. Now, if you use that same phrase, Jesus' blood wasn't shed because we already had remission of sins. Neither did Peter tell the repentant believers or the questioning uh, crowd on the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized because you already have received remission of sins. He was saying, repent and be baptized so you can get remission of sins. Right. Hallelujah. So it's important some people say, well, uh, what's the difference in what happens at repentance and baptism? And there's really, some people say, well, you get forgiven at one, you get remitted, the sin's remitted at the other. There's only one Greek word for to translated to both English words. It doesn't seem to be that you can separate forgiveness and remission according to the Greek text. They're really one and the same. But I think there is something that does happen at repentance. And I like to explain this. You're establishing a present relationship with God. You're dealing with your present lifestyle. You're saying, Lord, I am going to change my lifestyle. I'm going to live holy. I want to receive your spirit so that I can begin a relationship. But let me ask you, if you were to live holy without sin from that moment forward, would you qualify for heaven? You still have the record of the sins of your past. It seems to me that water baptism is designed to wash away the record of the past, the guilt of the past. It's like if someone were to spill ink on the carpet. And you might go to Brother Tenney and say, I'm sorry, forgive me, I didn't mean it, I'll never be that clumsy again. And be my friend and establish the personal relationship. But still, somebody's got to get the ink out of the carpet. It seems to me that maybe is an analogy of repentance and baptism. However we may look at it, we can say simply this. According to Acts 2.38, it takes both repentance and baptism to bring about the complete forgiveness or the complete remission of your sins. We know that's what does happen why try to divide it up and speculate uh, what could happen or what doesn't happen if we'll just rely on the promises of God's Word? We know that we receive the remission of sins. Now, what about baptismal mode and formula? Well, there, there are five cases, five examples of water baptism in the New Testament church that mention a formula or a name. And every time, it's the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 2, the Jews got baptized in Jesus' name. Acts 8, the Samaritans. Acts 10, the Gentiles. That's all classes of humanity right there. Acts 19, disciples of John were rebaptized a second time. Now, they had already been immersed in water, already repented, already been baptized by a man of God, uh, baptism that was valid in its time. The only difference was the name of Jesus. But that was so important in the New Testament church that they were rebaptized in the name of Jesus. Then Acts 22, Paul was baptized calling or invoking or uttering the name of the Lord, which he knew very well. He said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. So we've got five of five cases telling us to baptize everybody in Jesus' name. We've got theology to back us up because there's no trinity, so there's no justification for a trinitarian formula. We've got early church history to back us up. The historians tell us uniformly that the early church baptized in Jesus' name. If I had the time, I could cite you source after source You can look in the book I've written, The New Birth, and you can see throughout church history, there are some who have baptized or referred to the Jesus name formula. The most recent evidence I looked at, 1660, some Baptists in England were baptizing in the name of Jesus Christ. And the more research we do, the more we find that the baptism in Jesus name exists in church history. Did you know that as far as church history is concerned, the vast majority of Christianity has accepted the necessity of baptism. The Roman Catholic Church says it's essential. The Orthodox says it's essential. Uniformly, in the first five centuries of Christianity, they said baptism is essential. Only in later days, if some of the Protestants said, it's just optional. Martin Luther himself, although he taught justification by faith so strongly, he said the moment that you are baptized, your faith comes into contact with God. And so he still held that baptism was essential, even a figure such as Martin Luther. So we can see that Scripture tells us, doctrine tells us, Church history tells us you must be baptized. Now, let's look at the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Baptized into one body. It's the exact same phrase that Jesus used when he said, you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. Not many days hence. You can translate it, baptized with, in, by, all those phrases, but it's the same. By one spirit, or with one spirit, or in one spirit, we're baptized into one body. Ephesians 1.13, it's the seal of our inheritance. It's the onus of our inheritance. It's the seal of our salvation. Titus 3.5, we're saved about the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Spirit. Now, some say that there are two experiences. First, you receive Christ, and then you receive the Holy Ghost. But if you understand the oneness of God, to receive Christ is to receive the Holy Ghost. To receive the Holy Ghost is to receive Christ. I do not believe the baptism of the Holy Ghost is a second optional post-conversional experience but I believe it is part of salvation into the New Testament church. Because you see, if being born of the Spirit and being baptized of the Spirit is two different things, we don't have one example of anybody being born of the Spirit in the New Testament church. It's all being baptized of the Spirit. Acts chapter 1, Jesus said you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 2, that was fulfilled. It says they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Then Peter said, referring to this same experience, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. In Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius and his household received the Holy Ghost, it said it was poured out on them. It said it fell on them. They received the gift of the Holy Ghost. In Acts 11, when Peter was talking about it, he said they received the same gift that we did. What I'm trying to show you is all these terms are interchangeable. To be baptized, to be filled, to receive the gift, poured out, fell on. It's all used interchangeably in the book of Acts. They all refer to the same experience. If you try to divide it into two experiences, you won't be able to find one of them. Because there's only one experience. Now, strangely enough, Christianity will agree with that in theory. They will say, you must have the Holy Spirit to be saved. The Catholics will say, I have received the Holy Spirit. Those that know their theology. The Baptists will say, we're all baptized with the Holy Ghost. Billy Graham will say, I'm baptized with the Holy Ghost. You know, historic Christianity, all except the Trinitarian Pentecostals and Charismatics, understand the clear teaching of Scripture. If you don't have the Holy Ghost, you're not part of the New Testament Church. That's what it takes. They understand that. Here's the rub. is speaking in tongues, the evidence. Now, when you study the Scripture, there are five examples of of being baptized with the Holy Ghost in the New Testament Church. Acts 2, there was a sound like wind to usher in the the presence of the Spirit, to tell them the Spirit had come. There was flames of fire that sat on each of them that signified the availability of each person. But what was the sign when they were all filled? They began to speak in tongues. Then, Acts chapter 10, Cornelius received the Holy Ghost. People didn't believe he could have it. The Jews that were with Peter didn't think he could have it until he converted to Judaism first. But they were forced to admit it despite their unbelief and skepticism. They had to admit it. Why? For they heard them speak with tongues. Now, there was no wind, there was no fire, but that was enough for Peter to say, they got the same thing we did on the day of Pentecost. Anybody that speaks in tongues today, you can say, that is the Pentecostal experience. That's the same thing. Acts chapter 19, they received the Holy Ghost, they spoke in tongues. Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans, it doesn't say what happened when they received the Holy Ghost. But somehow they knew they hadn't got it yet, despite all their experiences. That so they had great joy, Said so they believed, they were baptized, and they must have repented to get baptized. They had these experiences of joy, but somehow they knew they hadn't got the Holy Ghost yet. They were waiting for a sign. Then when Peter and John laid hands on them, at that moment they knew they got it. How did they know so sure that at that moment hands were laid on them? A sign came. Simon the magician said, I want to buy that power. Now, Simon is a pretty hard-headed, cynical magician. He's wanting to wow his audiences into thinking he has some great power. Is he just looking at somebody that says, I feel joy? Is he looking at somebody that says, I confess the Lord? No, he's looking at a miracle. And when you look at all the evidence, the only miracle that is present in all the other accounts is speaking in tongues. And in Acts 9, Paul received the Holy Ghost. It doesn't say how, but we know from 1 Corinthians 14, 18, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. And he said that tongues came by the operation of the Holy Spirit. So in all cases, you speak, see speaking in tongues is the expected evidence. Now, I'm going to take a few minutes to read some things here. What really intrigued me, a lot of people have done research on speaking in tongues in church history, but nobody has really done much research on tongues as the initial evidence. But I have found that throughout church history people have wrestled with this question. It's so clear in scripture that you would expect to speak in tongues when you receive the Holy Ghost. They've tried to rationalize it or something. Here in the second century, Irenaeus, he listen to what he said. The apostle terms those persons perfect who have received the spirit of God and who through the spirit of God do speak in all languages whom in like manner we do hear many brethren in the church who through the spirit speak all languages whom the apostle term spiritual they being spiritual because they partake of the spirit second century he seems to be saying those that are spiritual are those that have received the spirit with a sign speaking in tongues now here is Augustine in the 5th century you ever heard of him Now, he was arguing against those that spoke in tongues. He said it no longer happens today, but he inadvertently admits it used to happen. Listen. For the Holy Spirit is not only given by the laying on of hands amid the testimony of miracles as he was given in former days. For who expects in these days that on whom hands are laid that they may receive the Holy Ghost should forthwith begin to speak in tongues? He says we don't expect it now, but he admits that the church used to expect it when you laid hands on for the receiving of the Holy Ghost, you immediately spoke in tongues. John Chrysostom, the fourth century, he's trying to explain 1 Corinthians 12, the spiritual gifts. Notice what he says. This whole place is very obscure, but the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to and by their cessation, being such as then used to occur, but now no longer take place. Well, what did happen then? Whoever was baptized, he straightway spoke with tongues. They at once on their baptism received the spirit. They begin to speak one in the tongue of the Persians, another in that of the Romans, another in that of the Indians, or in some other language. And this disclosed to outsiders that it was the spirit in the speaker. Now, if you notice those languages, he wasn't referring to any account in the book of Acts. He was referring to the tradition of the early church after the book of Acts. They used to get the Holy Ghost this way, he said. And when they spoke in tongues, everybody knew they got the Holy Ghost. But it doesn't happen that way anymore, he says. In later church history, 19th century, R.A. Torrey, a holiness minister, listen to this. If one is baptized with the Holy Spirit, will he not speak in tongues? But I saw no one so speaking, and I often wondered, is there anyone today who is actually baptized with the Holy Spirit? Listen to uh, Tyndale New Testament commentaries commenting on Cornelius. We cannot tell for certain ...whether the gift of tongues was the inevitable accompaniment of the coming of the Spirit. In other words, he's saying maybe they always spoke in tongues when they received the Spirit. We cannot tell for sure. The reason why they're so reluctant to tell for sure is because they don't. And they find it hard to justify. Listen to Billy Graham. I find it interesting that he, although he does not believe that you must speak in tongues, he believes it's possible. And you can tell he's struggling with this because notice the way he hedges it around. Among many churches which consider themselves charismatic, speaking in tongues is not regarded as an essential sign of having been born again. I cannot see solid scriptural proof for the position that tongues as a sign is given to all who are baptized with the Spirit. The gift of tongues is not necessarily a sign of the baptism of the believer by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. You wonder why he just doesn't say speaking in tongues is not the sign but he has to hedge that because he's confirming with the scriptural evidence. I think he's trying to struggle in his own soul honestly and so he has to say speaking in tongues is not necessarily a sign but he has to leave it open it might be. And I'm not degrading him for this. I'm pointing people that have struggled with these things from outside our movement and are trying to understand the scriptural position. I'm so glad that I can see and that it's happened to me. Hallelujah. We're not better than they. We just found the truth, and it happened in our life, and we can rejoice over it and be thankful to God that we received it. We don't have to wonder about it. Hallelujah. John Wimber, who is uh, very well known in charismatic circles. He doesn't really consider himself charismatic, but he considers himself an evangelical that's spoken in tongues. He says evangelicals know that they receive the Holy Spirit when they're born again. In other words, he's saying we know there can't be two levels of receiving the Holy Ghost. So he's trying to explain, and then he goes on to say the two gifts of tongues, and he also mentions prophecy, are initiatory according to the pattern of the New Testament. In other words, he's saying when you receive the Holy Ghost according to the pattern of the New Testament, you ought to speak in tongues and prophesy. So the logical question to him is, why don't all these people speak in tongues if they get the Holy Ghost? And his answer is, well, they must release the gifts. He's saying, well, we got it, but we've got a delayed release. But you see, he's struggling with the problem. When you receive the Holy Ghost, you're supposed to speak in tongues. That's what the Scripture shows. So he's trying to figure out how can we receive the Holy Ghost and not have these gifts. Something's wrong. We need to learn to release them is what he's saying. But praise God. I was just preaching last week, and there was a lady that had been in a denomination, a holiness denomination, and she thought you must be saved and then sanctified and then filled with the Holy Ghost. So she was struggling to be sanctified, to live a holy life long enough to get the Holy Ghost. Well, I preach that you must repent and get the Holy Ghost. Then you live a holy life. And somehow the Word of God talked to her. I was teaching, much as I am now. But the Word of God always anoints the teaching of the Word. And so after the teaching, I said, Now, if anybody wants the Holy Ghost, all you have to do is come up. Repent first. Prepare your heart first. Then we'll lay hands on you like the Bible says. And she came up. We lay hands on her. And she received the Holy Ghost. Been speaking in other tongues as the Spirit of God gave utterance. It's really very easy when you understand the scriptural pattern. Well, let me try to summarize what I'm saying tonight by giving you some examples. Let's look at the examples. Some people say, well, some of these things aren't absolutely necessary. Let's look at the examples. First of all, the, the gospel accounts. We understand that the people in the gospels were saved under the old covenant while they were waiting for the new covenant. They couldn't receive the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost was not yet given. They couldn't be buried with Christ in baptism. Christ hadn't been buried yet. So they were saved by faith as they waited for the old covenant. When a Jew who was under covenant had backslid and he turned back to the Lord, repented of his sins, Jesus forgave him on the spot and reinstituted him into the old covenant relationship. Much as a Christian today who goes into sin, he can repent before God and confess his sins and be reinstituted into that new covenant. But somebody that has never entered that covenant they need to enter by the spiritual circumcision of baptism and receiving the Holy Ghost now the New Testament church began on the day of Pentecost and we saw what happened there they were baptized in Jesus name they received the Holy Ghost then the Samaritans Acts 8 I've already pointed out they did have faith they had a joy they had miracles they had repentance they had baptism but they knew they didn't have the Holy Ghost yet their salvation was not complete until they received the Holy Ghost. The Apostle Paul is an outstanding example. I would like to show this a moment to you. In Acts chapter 9, Paul was smitten from heaven with this light. And notice what he said in Acts chapter 9, verse 6. He, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? He confessed Jesus as his Lord. Notice that. Apparently he repented because he was willing to obey. What do you want me to do? And so God told him to go to Ananias. Ananias came, and Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hand on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared to thee in the way as thou camest, has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Immediately there fell from his eyes, as it had been scales, he received his sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. Now, in Acts 22, 16, as Paul is relating his conversion, this is what Ananias told him. And why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized. And wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Apparently, his sins had not been washed away when he confessed Jesus as Lord, when he repented, but he still needed to be baptized. Now, there is even implication. Uh, it's I wouldn't say this is absolute doctrine, but it seems that Ananias prayed for him to receive his sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost, and it says he received his sight and then was baptized. It appears that he received the Holy Ghost before he got up and was baptized in water. If so, if so, Ananias is saying, You have already received the Holy Ghost. You still need to have your sins washed away. But the point is, the full conversion experience includes both baptism of water and spirit. Now look at Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. He was devout. He paid alms. He prayed. It seems that he was an epitome of a repentant person. He even had a vision. He even had an angel from heaven. There are a lot of people that haven't had that. And a lot of people, if they did have it, they would know for sure they were saved. But the angel said, Peter will tell you the words whereby with you and all your house shall be saved. It seemed like he needed the Holy Ghost. And notice, while Peter was preaching, he received the Holy Ghost instantly. There was no two-stage or three-stage. He received the Holy Ghost as part of his initial conversion. And then he was commanded... Not just it might be a good idea sometimes, but he was commanded to be baptized. Even after we received the Holy Ghost, it's a command to be baptized. And it's at our own pearl if we ignore the clear command of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I want to show you Apollos. In Acts 18, Apollos was a, Apollos was a disciple of John. Listen to what it says about him. A certain Jew named Apollos, Acts 18, 24, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. Look at his spiritual qualifications. Eloquent, mighty in the Scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in the Spirit. But yet, apparently, he wasn't saved because he knew only the baptism of John. He did not even know about Jesus. How can you be saved without knowing Jesus Christ? If he did know about Jesus, how come he wasn't following the Lord's commands? to receive the Holy Ghost, to fellowship with the apostles in their doctrine. What did he have to do? Well, the next chapter, Acts 19, tells us what some other disciples of John had, had to do. They needed baptism in Jesus' name, even though they already had been baptized, and they needed to receive the Holy Ghost. So it seems that Apollos, with all of his spiritual qualities, and there are many people in the world today, in various churches, that we can admire greatly for all these uh, great spiritual qualities, but yet we still need to lead them to the apostolic new birth experience as described for the New Testament church. So when you look at these case studies, it seems that the full Acts 2.38 message is part of the plan of salvation. Now, let me make a few statements here. A lot of people would like to make exceptions to this. What about this person? Surely he say, what about this? What about this? Let me just give you some pointers. First of all, God is sovereign. He is the judge. We're not out to judge people. Just give it into the hands of God. Let God be the judge. I tell people in all sincerity, I was talking to one person and he said, what you're saying is I'm going to hell. I said, wait a minute. God is the judge. That's first. But second, I must tell you his word. And I can give you his word. I can't put you in heaven. I can't put you in hell. I can't guarantee you a place either way. But I can show you what the word of God says that you must do. And then I can give you my own personal experience and tell you what happened to me. And I can tell you that if I didn't have the full experience, I wouldn't feel confident of my salvation. It's up to you and God now. God is your judge. I think we can say that honestly in all sincerity. The second thing is we are not in the business of condemning. Mark chapter 9, the disciples said, Hey, you're, about, you're, you're casting out devils in Jesus' name. You can't do that. Jesus said, Let them alone. Let them do it. Whatever good they're doing, that's fine. Paul said in Philippians 1, I don't care how Christ is preached. Some preach him out of evil motives, contingent and strife. So what? At least he's preached. I'm glad that people have spread the name of Jesus, the Bibles, as far as they have. That makes our job that much easier. Every step they come to truth, that's fine. Let's just bring them some more. Whatever level of truth they've come to, acknowledge that. Thank God for it. Commend them. Don't deny what they do have, but say there's more for you. Let's receive it all. Hallelujah. And it works, friends. It works over. See, it works here. I believe we can convert ministers and churches and even denominations if we recognize what truth they do have and say, Come on. But it's another thing for us to start going back. We must, in Philippians 3, let every man walk to the level he's ever attained. Don't go back. Keep going on. Forget things behind. Press forward. Walk to the level you've attained. Walk to the understanding you have, and God will lead you on. Number three, the Bible is our sole authority. I cannot impose demands that Scripture doesn't. On the contrary, I cannot offer loopholes that the Scripture doesn't. You know, we could say, well, what if this person didn't use the Bible formula? What if he was sprinkled? What if he was baptized in the Father's name? Goes. What I tell him is, look, we know what happens if you do what the Bible says. Why invent? non-biblical alternatives and then try to think up reasons why it's okay. Just do it the Bible way and you know what happens. I can't offer you a loophole here, there, and yon. What about this person that died on the deathbed? Well, leave that up to God. He is the only judge. But we cannot offer loopholes that the Bible doesn't get. And then, we cannot rely on human reasoning or hypothetical situations. Somebody says, what about this guy in the middle of the desert? What about this guy on the deathbed? What about the guy here. What about there? Let God be the judge. We cannot change our doctrine based on human reasoning. Human reasoning is faulty. Human reasoning is deception. What we think is right is not often right by human logic. We must go with the word of God says. Then we have authority. And let me say this. I believe God will lead the diligent seeker to salvation. I don't worry about the honest heathen way out there in the jungle that's trying all he can to be saved. I believe God will do what he did for Cornelius. He will bring a preacher of salvation to him. Even somebody like Saul, as bitter as he seemed to be, apparently there was a struggle in his soul. Apparently he was fighting himself. And as a result, I don't think God just predestined him for salvation. I believe God saw that Saul was seeking truth, even though he was fighting truth. And God said, I'll give him a chance to show him what to do. And when God struck him, Paul reacted, What do you want me to do, Lord? He had that desire in his heart. And as a result, God led him to the truth. I believe God does lead the diligent seeker to truth. Now, some people say we're too exclusive. But, you know, all Christianity is. Every Christian group is excluded somebody. The only, the only thing is, where do you draw the line? The Catholics, who is more exclusive than them? Nobody else is saved but them is what they really say. Pope Boniface VIII in the 1300s said it is absolutely necessary to salvation for every soul to be subject to the Roman Pope. You can't get more exclusive than that they said everybody else is heretics now Martin Luther comes along for the Protestant leader he says the Roman Catholic Church is the harlot of revelation the Pope is the Antichrist hard to get more exclusive than that Zwingli comes along the next great Protestant leader he and Luther agree on everything except one thing Luther thinks the actual blood and body of Christ is in the Eucharist in the communion like the Catholics do and Zwingli says no 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 it's just a symbol you know what Luther turned to Zwingli and said you have a different spirit than us we can't work with you. And when he heard of Zwingli's death, Zwingli, by the way, died fighting the Catholic Church in battle. And uh, you know what Luther said when he heard his death? That was the devil's martyr. He wasn't even willing to concede salvation to his closest colleague. And then Luther advocated persecution of the Anabaptists. We would fit closer with the Anabaptists than anybody else. Zwingli's followers, they he advocated persecution of the Anabaptists. Zwingli's followers took... One of these guys and said, "You want to be baptized by our immersion? Okay." They dumped him in the river and drowned him. John Calvin, the follower of the, the forerunner of the Presbyterians, Calvin took Servetus, who denied the Trinity and affirmed the deity of Christ, and said, "You must be rebaptized." And Calvin had him burned at the stake. And he was crying out, Jesus, the Son of God, have mercy on me. And they said, say he's the eternal Son of God and you can be set free from these flames. Say he's the eternal Son. And he said, Jesus, the Son of the eternal God. He wouldn't say, Jesus, the eternal Son of God. So they killed him. Calvin wanted to have him beheaded instead of burned. So we'll give him credit for that. So what am I saying? I'm not trying to tear down these people necessarily. That's not my point. My point is, no matter how great they are, they were exclusive more so than we would ever dream of being. So just because our message may seem to exclude somebody, that's no reason for rejecting it. Look at the Bible on its merits and then make the decision on the basis of the Bible. And I could go on and on. Today they may call us heretics, cultists, so on. But by doing that, they're excluding us. By their own lines, if we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, if we confess Jesus as Lord, they're excluding us. Where does that put them? See, it can cut both ways. So the point is, get off the debate of exclusivism. What does the Bible say? Jesus was the most exclusive preacher there ever was. We must follow him. Well, I'm coming to a close tonight. Here's what I've tried to glean from all this. We must emphasize, we must keep our priorities and our emphasis right. First of all, salvation is by faith, not works. We believe in holiness, We believe in repentance. We believe in baptism. But we must get our emphasis right. We don't work our way to heaven. We don't live holy to get saved. We live holy because we are saved. We live an obedient life out of faith and love. But our salvation is based on our personal relationship to Jesus Christ. Our faith in the living Lord. Not our adherence to doctrine. Not our standards. And I believe in the standards. Very much so. What I'm saying is our salvation is not based in that. Our salvation is based in the living Christ. His spirit in our life a daily communion and love and fellowship with Him and all the rest flows from that. We must get our priorities right and our emphasis right. And we must give a message of hope, not condemnation. Jesus Himself didn't come to condemn the world and He sure could have, but He didn't. He came to offer hope. We can do no less. What do we got to do? Preach Acts 238. We've got to do that. That's That's Bible. Oliver Foss once said when he, he was baptized at the Elton Bible Conference here in Louisiana when he was a teenager. When he got back to Houston, his family said he was a heretic. The Trinitarian Pentecostal leaders came and all lined up and started talking to him about the Godhead, throwing questions he'd never heard of. He writes in his autobiography, when I got through, I didn't know if there was one person in the Godhead or a dozen. But you know what he did? He went and prayed and said, Lord, if I'm going into error, show me. What is truth? He opened the Bible to Acts 2.38. And he says, I don't know the answers to all those questions, but one thing I know As long as this is in the Bible, Lord, I'm going to preach it. We don't have to have an arrogant attitude. We don't know all there is to know. But we can preach what is plain as black and white right there. That's the message we should uphold. Hallelujah. Preachers, we've got to preach the whole counsel of God. We can do no less. We must preach that continued obedience is always necessary. There's no grounds for ever stopping short of full obedience to God's word you receive the Holy Ghost, good. But if you haven't been baptized, get baptized. It's always necessary to walk in the light as he is in the light. It's always necessary to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's always right to preach the whole message. In love, not with ridicule, not with condemnation, not with sarcasm, but it's always right. It's never wrong to do right. It's always right to preach the full message of God. You know what? We preach, what will you get? you say the Holy Ghost is just optional it would be nice to have for some people you know what you'll have a church full of people that don't have the Holy Ghost I've seen it happen over and over I was talking with an assembly of God minister about this and you know what he, he asked I thought he was going to ask why do you teach you have to have the Holy Ghost you know what he said instead, how do you get your people to all to receive the Holy Ghost he says you say they have to have it and so they all get it how do they get it I've got a church full of people I can't seem to get them to get the Holy Ghost the key is preach it you preach what you get you get what you preach, I should say. So, salvation is by grace. Here's my summary. Salvation is by grace through faith, based on the atoning death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the basis of our salvation. But the application of grace, the expression of faith, come to us as we obey and experience John 3, 5 and Acts two thirty eight. I believe that summarizes our message. Now let's stand tonight. Brother Tenny, with your indulgence, I'm, I'm going to just maybe give an off the call here or something. I believe God honors his word. And I hope I haven't been too dry and long for you tonight. But I hope something has stirred up within you. I know you've heard this before, but I hope maybe the Lord has just let you see it in a little different way. Maybe put the pieces together. Give you a fresh confidence, renewed zeal. Is there somebody that wants the Holy Ghost tonight? You can receive the Holy Ghost tonight. I've I've taught for five hours and ends in Eastern Europe, given an altar call in two or three minutes, people receive the Holy Ghost. Certainly not because of me, because somehow faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And I'm here to promise you that if you'll repent of your sins, turn your heart to God, complete surrender, you can receive the Holy Ghost tonight. And I believe the Lord is talking to some that need the Holy Ghost. Make your mind up to come down here in just a moment. We'll pray for you. But I believe the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God, is moving here to talk to some ministers here tonight. Not that you don't believe it, not that you've ever doubted it, but something is burning within you, not out of bitterness or hate or sarcasm or narrow-mindedness, but out of love for the truth, that you want to stand up and reaffirm this as never before. Could we be in a spirit of prayer right now? I believe the Lord is talking to some hearts, and I've asked Him to confirm this word tonight, that it would not just be the words of a man, but somehow the Spirit of God would move in this place and confirm His word to our hearts in a mighty way. And I believe the Lord is talking to some people, first of all, to come and receive the Holy Ghost. But I believe the Lord is talking to maybe some young ministers, maybe some elders, maybe some that aspire to the ministry, and He's saying, I want you you come and make that commitment all over again that as never before you're going to stand up for the name of Jesus that you're going to widen your horizons and realize there may be a denominational preacher in your town that is hungry for God there may be a church that you can be instrumental in leading them to God there may be an open door that you don't dream of there may be a prominent member of your community a doctor a lawyer There may be a state representative. There may be someone that you don't even dream would accept this message. But if you will express it in love, in concern, in truth, give them the Bible. I will honor your stance. If you will stand up for the truth. If you won't be afraid to proclaim who you are and what you believe. I'm going to honor that. Are there some ministers that would like to just make their way forward right now. And just reaffirm your commitment to the Lord and his gospel message. Would you come right now? Would you come? Not just everybody, but maybe some that the Lord has really spoken to. Maybe not just tonight, but the last few months you've seen the Lord is bringing you to this point. Of a renewed zeal. A renewed love for the Word of God. It's not enough to know the truth. We must love the truth. If we know it and don't love it, the Bible says we're going to be sent strong delusion. That we would believe a lie and be damned. But I don't want only to know the truth. I want to love it with all of my heart. I want to make a new commitment, a renewal of my vow, to stand firm on the message of repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, receiving the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues, living a holy life, loving the one true and living God. Can we make some consecrations tonight? If there's some that need the Holy Ghost, why don't you make your way forward?